There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. The Free Lunch Podcast, Greg. It's free. It's free. It's available weekly at your local, I don't know, wherever you download your podcast from. That's right. And it's free. A couple of weeks ago, we started this mini series on choosing an investment professional. And Greg, I got to be quite honest. I thought the conversation was a little stale because we already know the answer. We do. Who should people go to if they're seeking an investment professional? Well, among many very capable teams, I think the CM group is an excellent choice. And where would you find this group, Greg? You would find it right here. <laughs> or right here, right now. <laughs> All right. So we've already solved that problem of choosing an investment professional. So today we're going to get into something different. Last week, we talked about measuring risk by using standard deviation. And two weeks ago, we had Alison Traeger on talking about what is risk. So today we're going to talk about volatility and the difference between risk and volatility. They're two different things. Maybe they're correlated, but they're different. Well, and they're different in how individuals or investors think of risk as opposed to how academics think of risk. Right on. Yeah. Let's talk about volatility as a definition. So volatility is a statistical measure of the dispersion of returns for a given security or market index. So what does that mean in English? In English, it just means it just measures outcomes and where they land compared to other outcomes. So in most cases, the higher the volatility, the riskier the security, which makes sense. Volatility is often measured a couple of ways. Number one, through standard deviation or through variance. And we talked about standard deviation last week. Standard deviation is actually just calculated as the square root of variance. That's how you calculate it if anybody's interested. But in the securities markets, volatility is often associated with kind of big swings in either direction. So we've seen some of this the last few weeks, maybe the last month. We've seen lots of days where the market has opened down and closed up or opened up and closed down or some variation. So when the stock market rises and falls more than 1% over a sustained period, that is defined as a volatile market. Now, I would argue that could be almost every day this last Well, we month. have seen that. Yeah, the market can easily move 1% or more in a day. That's right. There was one day a few weeks ago where the S&P 500 opened up down 4.6% and closed the day positive. And that's volatility. That's like hyper volatility. Yep. So volatility often refers to the amount of uncertainty or risk related to the size of changes in a security's value. A higher volatility means that a security's value can potentially be spread out over a larger range of values. And that's where we talked about how you could be within one or two standard deviations of the expected return or more. So this means that the price of the security can change dramatically over a short time period in either direction. And a lower volatility means that a security's value does not fluctuate dramatically and tends to be steadier. And it's interesting, of course, when stocks or markets go up in an unexpected amount, people don't tend to get fussed by that. 
It's a delightful thing, particularly if you have investments in the market or in that particular security. So it's really only when things go down, when the volatility is in the negative direction, that people really get fussed. And so in a way, it's almost a one-sided thing, but volatility up and down are both parts of the same measure. Yeah, nobody cares about upside risk. Exactly. They only care about downside risk. So one way to measure an asset's variation is to quantify the daily returns, that is percent move daily of the asset. That's just what we talked about. Opens at a certain price, closes at a certain price. So historical volatility is based on historical prices and represents the degree of variability in the returns of an asset. And this number is without a unit and it's expressed as a percentage. So 1%, 2%, etc. Negative 1%, negative 2%, etc. While variance captures the dispersion of returns around the mean of an asset in general, geez, that doesn't sound like English, does it? No. Let's break that down. While variance captures the dispersion of returns around the mean of an asset in general, really means that, again, it's just showing the spread, where the outcomes lay in a distribution curve. Volatility is a measure of that variance bounded by a specific period. So again, these are kind of the same things, but can also be different based on periods. And so when you're talking about the mean of an asset, what we're talking about there is that, let's say you take an asset, define the S&P 500, the stock market index, the US large cap index. So if the returns over the last 50 years have averaged 8% a year, that's the mean. That's right. There's the average return. And so dispersion of those returns means, well, in any one year, like last year, for example, the actual return on the S&P 500 was something in the 23, 24% range, I believe, something like that. Way higher than So eight. that's quite a dispersion on the upside from the mean. And then you can look at other years, like let's say 2008, 2009, where I believe in one year, the market was down maybe 35%, which is quite a negative dispersion from 8% as the average annual return as well. That's right. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the difference from the historical and possibly expected return, how does the actual return vary? Yeah, so we think of volatility as the annualized standard deviation. And again, we went over standard deviation last week, and that's what you just described. You take the mean return, the expected return, and then you just apply some probabilities to it. So other measures of volatility, one measure of the relative volatility of a particular stock, because what we were just talking about was the market. But when it comes to a particular stock, a measure of volatility is beta. And beta approximates the overall volatility of that stock's return against the return of a relevant benchmark. So quite often people will look at the beta of a company versus the beta of the S&P 500 that you right. just mentioned. So the S&P 500, by definition, the beta is 1, 1 1.0. If you have a company stock and it has a beta of 1.1, then it means that every time the market goes up by 1%, that company stock should go up by 1.1%. Or if the market goes down by 1%, that stock should go down by 1.1%. That's the relationship. So if you have a stock that has a beta of 0.9, then it's the same thing. If the market moved up 100%, that stock price expected return is 90% or down 0.9 or up 0.9. What that says then is that the beta of that particular stock just means that historically it's been either more volatile in the case of a stock with a beta of 1.1 or less volatile in the case of a stock with a 0.9. That's right. So it's less volatile and that's something we'll talk about a little bit more. 
we won't spend any time on the VIX today, but it is something we can talk about in a future episode. That's the volatility index. It was created by the Chicago Board Options Exchange. We just won't have time to get into what the VIX is today per se, but it is just another way of measuring volatility in the market. That's right. And you can actually track it. It has a symbol VIX and you can actually track the market volatility using that. And sometimes you do tend to see the VIX spiking at times of high volatility, like for instance, in March of 2020, when the world locked down. That's right. There was lots of volatility. Let's look at a real world example just to build on this point. So suppose an investor is building a retirement portfolio and he or she is, I don't know, retiring within the next few years. They're looking at stocks to invest in with low volatility and steady returns and he or she considers two companies. Greg, are we recommending either of these companies? Absolutely not. Strictly for example purposes. Exactly. So the two companies we're looking at are Microsoft and Shopify. Just picked two. No particular reason why. Microsoft has a beta, or it's actually called beta coefficient technically, but a beta of 0.78 when compared to the S&P 500. And Shopify, which is actually a Canadian company, but trades on the U.S. exchange, has a beta coefficient of 1.45. So Shopify is significantly more volatile than Microsoft just based on its beta. So if the market was to go up 100%, Microsoft would go up 78%. If the market was to go up 100%, Shopify, in theory, would go up 145%. And by the way, of course, those are just theoretical expectations because what they're really talking about is, again, just how volatile the returns could be. That's right. Nobody's saying this is going to happen. This is just academia. So in this example, based on this person looking at retirement, building a retirement portfolio, they may actually choose Microsoft because it has less volatility in the stock price than Shopify. And it's interesting because, and when we talk about, well, Without giving away too much on our next episode, when we talk about beta in a little bit more detail, originally it was thought, well, that beta was the sole measure of a factor, is call it, of a future expected return. And it was thought, okay, well, if the stock is more volatile, has a high beta relative to the market, then it should have a higher expected return. And it turns out that's not the whole story, yeah. but it's definitely part of the story. I have a little song to play oh. for this investor who's choosing between Microsoft and Shopify. Please do. If you change your mind, take a chance on the first take a chance, chance, chance. We're going to take a chance on one of those companies. Who doesn't love Ava? Pretty remarkable. It's been many years since this song came out and it's pretty relevant still. Yep. I would say the beta coefficient on ABBA continuing to be played in the music world is, I don't know, one. Exactly. Yes. So listen, we've talked a little bit about the details around how volatility is measured. And let's take it now to the level of an investor. Let's talk a little bit about how do you think about your investments? If you're worried about market volatility, and obviously, as we've already said, volatility to the upside, most people don't worry about. It's really only the downside variance that keeps people awake at night. Well, because nobody cares about having the risk of having too much money. Exactly. And one thing we'll talk a little bit more, but obviously we have to remember that investing is a long game and you sometimes have to look past that. But it's been a rough start to 2022. 
January, the S&P 500 had its worst month since the start of the pandemic, which was March or February of 2020, and dropped about almost 10% in a few weeks. And I think the NASDAQ actually was down about 20%, very close to 20% in that month. And the difference between the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 is that the NASDAQ is more tech-based companies. Is that right? that's right. And so we'll talk a little bit about... In just a minute, I'm going to go through maybe some of the reasons why we saw that kind of volatility in January. But anytime investments lose value is a cause for concern for all of us, ourselves included. So anyone worrying about market volatility is not alone, but there are ways to reshape kind of the thoughts around the investments so you don't spiral kind of every time the market dips. And so let's talk about the current situation or the current environment and what's causing some of the volatility. So again, as I said, the new year brought a resurgence of volatility. We've had some pretty big swings, as you mentioned, 4.6% in one day. At the open. At the open, exactly. And this is all happening as investors are mulling over some positive economic news, corporate earnings, which are great in some cases and not so great in others. There's lots of geopolitical tensions and the prospect of a U.S. Federal Reserve Board that's a little bit more what they call hawkish. What does hawkish mean? Well, hawkish just means they're looking at being more aggressive with trying to deal with some of the issues around the economy, like inflation and that kind of thing. So in English, hawkish, doesn't it mean like potential interest rate hikes? Absolutely. And if they were dovish, it would be potential interest rate cuts? That's right. So hawkishness means doing things that will possibly remove some cash from the system and raise interest rates and other types of things. So what's behind the recent volatility? Well, it was sparked by some coming changes from the central banks and, again, the hawkishness of the central banks. So the chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve Board, Jay Powell, who people may have heard of from listening to financial news, he sparked some of the rise in volatility with a press conference following the meeting on January 26th. And at that meeting, the Federal Reserve left their policy rate, the key policy rate, unchanged. And the current policy rate in the U.S. is 0 to 0.25%. However, Powell did not push back on the possibility that the Fed could hike its rate at each meeting this year starting in March. Is there four meetings in the year? That's right. Although there are certain investment firms that believe that there could be as many as seven rate hikes this year. And so a lot of people are concerned that the Federal Reserve might move a little too fast or too far in its effort to renormalize interest rates after cutting it to 0 to 0.25% in response to the pandemic a couple of years ago. As soon as people heard that comment by Jay Powell, stock prices respond pretty quickly. You'll see they bounce pretty well after the swoon in equity markets or the downturn leading up to the meeting, but then they moved lower again. So when we're talking about a hawkish Federal Reserve Board, the conference left investors thinking that the Fed has become that much more hawkish with Powell seeing the need to reestablish their credentials as an inflation fighter because over the years, inflation has not been a problem. Up until this year, inflation was in the 2% range or so. Or under. Or under, which has been their target. But all of a sudden, you see in the U.S. inflation at 7%, the highest rate in 40 years. And so a lot of people are thinking, well, maybe they waited too long to cut back on some of the stimulus that they provided to the markets following the pandemic. And now they're going to move too hard or too fast and swing too far in the other direction. And you see it right now. And what happens is when you see that kind of concern, then 
you see changes in what's called the yield curve. So I think we've talked about the yield curve previously, but if you look at the Federal Reserve controls the overnight rates, the short-term rates, and currently set in the range 0 to 2.25%. But the bond market itself determines longer-term interest rates, so anywhere from two years up to 30 years. And so if you look at what's the yield on a two-year bond, a five-year bond, a 10-year bond, and a 30-year bond, and plot those on a graph, you get what's called the yield curve. And it just shows what the interest rate or the current yields are at every point along that two to 30-year time horizon. And in theory, the longer the bond, the higher it should pay. So that curve should go up and to the right. Generally, it should be sloping upwards to the right. Absolutely. But what's happened in recent months is the two-year treasury bond, which is just the two-year government bond in the U.S., the yield moved from 0.21% at the end of August to 1.18% today. And that's a pretty dramatic move. That's a five times increase in yield at the two-year treasury bond. Now, to the average investor, well, it's still not a lot because we tend to think in terms of, oh, what's a good interest rate? Well, everybody wants 5% without taking any risk. Well, it's been a couple of decades since we've been able to get that. But the move from 0.21% to 1.18% on the two-year bond shows a very dramatic increase in expectations for higher interest rates down the road. Now, longer-term bond yields have been more stable, but they are increasing. And so when we look at 10-year bonds in Canada and the US, they're between 1.8 and 1.9% right now. And again, that's up from maybe 1.1% to 1.2% back in August. So there's been quite a move up, but not so much at the longer end, more in the short-term rates. So they and call that a flattening of the yield curve. So what, And that's part of the concern is that, well, if the Federal Reserve raises short-term interest rates too quickly, you get higher interest rates in the short term If longer-term rates stay the same, you get what they call a flat or worse an inverted yield curve. And that usually is a leading indicator of a recession to come. So obviously, recessions are incredibly bad for the stock market. And so these fears of how will the Federal Reserve react and respond to rising inflation and how will they manage that process to try to deal with inflation cool down inflation, but not bring the economy to a halt by raising interest rates too far. And that has been one of the biggest stories of January and this year to date. And that's been a lot of the reason for the volatility. And just one last thing, with the fear of rising interest rates, or the not the fear, the likelihood of rising interest rates, certain groups of stocks like high growth technology stocks, for example, they tend to get hit very badly because just the way stock prices are a reflection of discounted future cash flows of a company. When interest rates go up, then prices logically will come down. And the faster growth that's implied, the more. So it makes sense that rising interest rates will be harder on fast growth technology companies than it will on other types of companies. Well, and that's why you're seeing the NASDAQ, as you said, pulled back roughly 20%. That's when right. the S&P 500 was maybe a little less than 10%. That's right. But remember, that market volatility is expected. Like we expect volatility in all markets, stock markets, bond markets, the real estate market, cryptocurrency market. Maybe that's an outlier, but there's a reason why putting your money in the market comes with risk. You can lose it just as quickly as you can grow it. And that's the reality of investing. Exactly. So the difference is going to be your time horizon. So when you're seeing multiple weeks of volatility, like we saw in January, many investors naturally start to question their strategy and wonder what else could they have done to protect their portfolio. 
using something called hindsight bias, Greg, to look back and see, geez, I should have done this. I should have seen that coming. Yeah, it was obvious. But it's important to remember that the ups and downs are now seeing is a completely normal part of investing. So while market dips can be stressful in the moment, like they have been during parts of January, these are short-term movements that you really shouldn't worry about as they're totally out of your control. Like that day when the S&P 500 opened up down minus 4.6%. I don't want to discount that. That's a huge loss at an open. And then to have the market close positive by the end of the trading session. That's a dramatic swing. That's a dramatic swing. And what would you have done during the day as an investor? Like we would say, do nothing. These day-to-day fluctuations mean very little to the long-term accumulation of your investments, and they really shouldn't impact your overall strategy. Now, there might be times where you can rebalance on certain days like that, or certain weeks or certain months. And we do believe people should be rebalancing their portfolios regularly. Absolutely. Right? Because investing is a long game, as you mentioned. So this year so far has been a reminder that the market doesn't always go up. It doesn't always have a, what did you say? Upside risk. Yep. Right. (laughs) So it's an investor's best interest. Stay the course. Understand it is a long game where you most likely benefit from sticking to a plan over time. And in fact, not giving your investments time to grow is actually one of the biggest investing mistakes many experts say to avoid. So that's like when you see the market sells off and you sell with it. That would be like having a garden. What would you plant in a garden, Greg? Peas? Sure. Let's say you planted some, I don't know, you planted some peas and then the next day, I don't know, it got too cold. So you just pulled all the seeds out. You never grew the peas. Doesn't make sense. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's a terrible example, but. All right. Ways to combat that are, as we've talked about, and you're going to get into it, is be diversified. So the market has historically trended up over time. So you have to think longer term. Investing, again, is a long game. No one can time the market. I don't care who they are. So it's important to keep your money invested. Otherwise, you could miss out on future potential gains. And you alluded to this, the importance of diversification, because when we talk about the sell-off in tech stocks that I just mentioned, where they were maybe down twice as much as the S&P 500 as a whole, it's a good reminder about the importance of diversification when investing. So if you put the vast majority of your investments in a diversified portfolio, that can help protect you from potential negative consequences of one or two sectors taking a larger downturn. And certainly, as I say, we saw that with tech stocks and we certainly saw it with energy stocks back in the early days of the pandemic. And so over time, they may correct themselves, but it makes for a much smoother ride if you're well diversified. But diversification is not owning 20 tech companies. No, it's not. And it's not owning 20 oil and gas companies. And that's why when we talk about diversification, we're talking about geographic diversification. So when we're talking about stocks specifically, let's say, being diversified, not only in Canada, which is one of the smaller stock markets in the world, but the US, overseas, international markets, even emerging markets. So diversifying geographically, diversifying by type of company, whether it's a growth company, a value-oriented company, by relative trading prices, whether they're trading at high multiples, whether they're trading at lower multiples relative to earnings or book value and what have you. So diversification is a very broad aspect of building a portfolio. And we try to do and encourage people to be as diversified as they possibly can. Is that over to me? Back to you, Colin. (laughs) Okay. I've really enjoyed this conversation the last few weeks and thank the listener who suggested that we get back to more specific technical issues around investing. 
So the last few weeks, we've discussed risk, measurements of risk regarding expected return. We're going to get into some of that in another episode. We've talked about dispersion of return and volatility. We've talked about standard deviation. Again, dispersion from the mean that you mentioned. And it's not the kind of stuff that comes up in typical day-to-day conversations, but it's important when we're talking about investing. We've talked about variance, so the spread of the dispersion. We've talked about covariance, so how two or more variables move with each other. We haven't talked about heteroscedacity, but I just wanted to mention it because I like saying the word heteroscedacity. Are you, are you allowed to say that? Of course I am. Oh, of course okay. I am. It's just a statistical measurement on a scatter plot of how two objects don't behave with each other. I should have known that. Yeah, heteroscedacity. Come on. <laughs> We could have talked about kurtosis. We never got into that, but kurtosis is just measuring the fat tails of distributions. And maybe we'll get into that when we get into our next discussion. Can you call tails fat or is that appropriate? It's definitely appropriate. It's just an observation of outcomes, Greg. Okay. And lastly, we mentioned on this episode beta, which is again, how an investment moves with the movement of the market. Are they correlated positively or negatively or perfectly? So that leads us into our discussion for next week. Next week, we're going to get into the capital asset pricing model and expected return, or what some people call the CAPM. Looking forward to it. I am too. I think that'll be a fun discussion. I guess that's it. That's it for today, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Yep. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. Do subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.